Maybe you saw in the middle of this uh, past February, after a chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky, the reports are said are told that about 20 students originally remained after the chapel service and kept worshiping and praying. And before long, uh, there was a 24-hour service of worship taking place at the university that would gain national attention and ultimately bring droves and droves of people there until finally the college did uh, ask that it uh, cease about two weeks in. Uh, I have been asked my thoughts on this more than once since it happened. What do you think of the Asbury revival? To be honest, I don't have too much to say. I mean, did God do a special work there? I mean, perhaps it's not impossible. I'm not going to complain if people want to pray and sing praise songs for long periods of time and have the Scripture read. I have no reason to speak against it. My only pastoral concern would be this. As wonderful as those 14 days may have been, it's not more wonderful or special or more profound than what happens every Sunday at church. God was not more present there than He is right here in this very moment, in this hour as we meet. And the only concern I would have is that we mistake the spectacular as somehow more infused with the spirit and presence of Jesus than the ordinary and the mundane, the week in and week out gathering of God's people. For if we've learned anything thus far in this series on Converse Christianity, God does not work or act like we would think that He would work or act. Uh, He isn't often shining forth in the spectacular, but He's always showing up in the weakness of the Word and water and wine and bread. Always. He's always in the midst of the ordinary things that He's ordained. And so this morning, I want us to consider that as we look at Matthew 28. And the first thing we should see is one with all authority. You'll notice this pronouncement by Jesus concerning his present station couldn't be more sweeping, couldn't be in one sense more optimistic and powerful. The risen Christ has received that which, was he, that which, was he, that which he was sent to gain, and it's massive. I mean, notice what he says, all authority, bar none, is given to me singularly, in all spheres, in heaven and on earth, that I am in charge here in this place, and I'm in charge there in that place. It's solely mine, and I presently possess this kind of power. I mean, Jesus, the risen Son of God, has declared without so much as a stutter that He is King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and that His name and rank far outstrips any other name that exists past, present, or future. We finally see a man, the man, as he was intended to be. We see what our future was supposed to be like. We see this one in a new body, now crowned with glory and honor, soon to ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of God in a place of dignity and all authority. And it can hardly be lost on us, though, how he achieved this status. I mean, what path he took to get to that place of great success. I mean, his glory in the Gospels is ultimately his cross. I mean, that's what, if you will, earned him 
this spot of great dignity and authority. I mean, and we see clearly the contrary ways of God through that very event, that if Christ's main uh, 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 goal in his ministry was to live a life worthy of God's honor, and he gets a death that is worthy of a criminal, we see that God's way of gaining that which we're seeking is not our way. Under curse, we see a blessing. And under death, we see life and that more abundant. I mean, under affliction, the afflictions of Christ, we see our ultimate comfort and our eternal consolation. I mean, these ways that God works these things are not the way that we would have gone about it. God hides his wisdom in a cross of foolishness, as we learned on uh, the first week of this series. And you'll notice, if he hides his wisdom in this cross of foolishness, hanging on that cross, God hides his glory in the body of a man, Christ Jesus, the Lord. And in this man, the very Son of God, is all the fullness of the deity, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I mean, like Isaiah said, when, when you saw him, you wouldn't know it by looking at him. But there hides all the fullness of God in bodily form. Oh, I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, notice the call from the prophets was that we would know the Lord, Yahweh himself, the covenant God of Israel, know him. And yet now, because of this life and this death, to know God at all, you must know him through this one, through this crucified man. You must call on his name. You must declare him as Lord if you are going to be saved. I mean, to know the invisible God is to know him now through the man Christ Jesus risen from the dead. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you see him, the visible one, you have seen the Father whom no man has seen. If you see Him, you've seen the Father. If you know Him, you know the Father. It really is beautiful that God makes Himself to, known to us, His creatures, by hiding Himself as a creature, by adding to Himself a human nature, coming in this form in order that we might be saved through Him, in order that we might know Him. Because we could never approach Him, He approached us. Because we could never gain access to him, he brings himself to us as one of us. And as wonderful as that is, there's a slight problem. I mean, I think we can summarize it in this way. The sum and substance of our faith is this, that we need Jesus. We need Jesus for us and in our place. We need him to save us. And if when we see him, we see the Father... That's wonderful. And if we need Jesus in order to be saved, that's wonderful. But the question, of course, is where do we find him? I mean, when's the last time you've seen him? I mean, I didn't see him die. I've never met him face to face. If you have, I don't want to hear about it. Um, that will lead to a whole host of other conversations. Um, 
And because we've never seen him in this way, because we've never experienced him in this way, because we haven't touched and handled him like the apostles did, it causes a little bit of a problem. It's why so often people are dying for some sort of experience that confirms our faith, that somehow helps us know that we've encountered Jesus in some way. I mean, a great testimony, perhaps. Maybe a radical conversion from one way of life to another. Maybe some sort of extreme commitment where you sacrifice much or some big turnaround. But of course, all of those sorts of things have to do with me feeling that I have encountered Jesus. And the problem, of course, with that is that feelings change and memories fade. I mean, I used to have a really exciting testimony. I can't even remember half the details anymore. Thankfully, don't really care to, to be honest. But if we need Him, and if He's the sum and substance of our faith, and if when we see Him, we see the Father, you know, where do we find Him? If it doesn't seem He can be found in the way that we would normally go about it, of course, there is good news. Because Jesus promises, even in our text this morning, to be present and available to us so that we can meet Him. Notice what He says in verse 20. Not only do we have this pronouncement of His authority, we have this pronouncement of His presence. He says plainly at the end of this declaration of all authority that He will be present with His apostles and with us even to the end of the age. Well, what is that? Maybe that language isn't familiar to you. Well, it's the same age that Paul talks about when he says we live in this present evil age. I mean, there is this age, the one that we've known and experienced our whole life, this one that is very familiar to us, and then there is this next time period, the age to come, that life that we've yet to experience but by faith. Paul says that Jesus bears the name that is above every name, notice, in both of these spheres of time. That in this age and in the age to come, He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means Jesus rules both of these places right now. It may not look like it. You may you know, turn the news on today and wish Jesus was in charge, but Jesus is in charge. He has not lost control. He really is the King, even of this present day. And Jesus says that he is just as present right now in this age as he will be in the age to come and as he was when he's with his disciples on earth for the past 30 some odd years. He says, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. Of course, that's good news that Jesus is here, that he's present with us. This one with all authority in heaven and earth, this one who will never leave us or forsake us, He's here right now. But how? <laughs> I mean, how do we see him, hear him, interact with him? It seems, again, like one of those kind of misty, ephemeral Christian things that we say, we read the verse, and then we go, that's nice. And then we walk away, and then we enter into Monday, and we say, where's Jesus <laughs> in the midst of all this? But this one who pronounces his authority and pronounces his presence, 
also pronounces in this text that he's hidden in the weakest of weapons. He tells us, even in this text, how he will be present. Notice what he says right before he says he's going to be with them always. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, and behold, I will be with you always. Whether we like it or not, it is immediately after Jesus says, baptize and teach, that he also affirms that he's going to be present with his church until the end of the age. Some may argue, and rightly so, to one end. Well, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with us by the presence of his Spirit in this age. And at one level, yes, that's true. But of course, that just begs the next question. How is the Spirit present in this age, or how does he readily bring us Jesus in this age? What's the Spirit's role? I mean, one of the Spirit's primary roles in this period of time until we die and are raised to new creation is that he empowers the preaching of the word, the going and making disciples of all nations by teaching them, and the sacraments of the church, that the Spirit empowers baptism and the Lord's Supper. And again, that may sound foreign to our ears, but we've seen this all throughout Scripture, that the Spirit is present when the word of God is spoken, and he empowers that word to do Uh, amazing things. In fact, the reason that you're here today is because of God's powerful words. Not just that you're in church, but that you exist. God spoke you into existence. The terra firma on which you walk, the matter on which you're sitting right now is all a spoken word of God. This whole world hangs together even now by the speech of our Creator. On that first day of creation, there was God speaking his word. Let there be light. And there was light. But there wasn't just the speech of God. There was the spirit of God hovering over the waters and forming and fashioning all that was. So when God was speaking, the spirit was working. And it's been that way. I mean, that's why we read Ezekiel's text. As odd as it is and as strange as it sounds, the picture is wonderful, right? Dead bones, can they live again? I don't know. Uh, what should you do? Preach to the bones, which seems foolish. And so he preaches and they begin to gather together. He says, but the, you can't just have the words merely. They're, they're words that are creative words. And when those creative words are spoken, notice he says, preach to the wind, the ruach, the spirit. And the spirit comes and gives life with the preaching of the word. It's why Paul will say, when he talks about the place that the preaching of the word takes in the life of the church, he says, for the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the let there be light God, he has also shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he's just told us two verses before, that light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the light of the gospel when it's preached. It says, the same God that said, let there be light, one day when the word was being preached, said to your heart, let there be light. And you, you uh, much like those bones, came to life. The same God who would be hidden from us if he did not reveal himself, if he did not put on the creatureliness of our person by adding to himself a human nature, 
That same God who comes in that weakness and dies in the foolish death of a cross in order to display his wisdom further reveals to himself, not merely by hiding himself in the wrapper of creation and incarnation, but gets more ridiculous now that he comes to us hidden in the words of a preacher and in the bread and wine of a table and the water of a baptism. That he's not ashamed to come and present himself in these weak and ordinary forms in order that he might be made known in this world. As one author has put it, God brings a knife to a gunfight. If you had just been, uh, you know, if you had just come from resurrection and said, by the way, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, what weapons would you choose to take over or to take uh, what's rightfully yours? to gain the dominion that's been given to you by God himself. Jesus says, here's my weapons. Go and teach people what I've commanded and baptize them in my name. And in that way, I will inherit all that is mine under this authority. God has chosen the ordinary and the unimpressive, and he hides behind these things to do his miraculous saving work and to bring about his glorious will in this world. Again, not the way that we would have thought about it, nor would it be the means that we've chosen. But God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. It is interesting that in the preacher, again, God himself addresses the creature, you, through a creature, me, (laughs) That God hides himself, the invisible God is willing to be heard through the voice of one who is unimpressive. I mean, I don't even have any tattoos or anything cool. I've, uh, I've never given a TED Talk. Uh, no one outside of this room barely knows my name unless they're related to me. It's almost too dumb and too weak to take seriously. And God says, this is how I bring all things to life. Paul even speaks of it this way. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. Because I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message was not with plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I can't exegete that whole thing for you, but here's what Paul's saying. When I came preaching to you, I was shaky. Uh, You know, my speech pattern wasn't perfect. I wasn't super eloquent. It was not impressive, but the Spirit was present when I was speaking because that's how he works. And I did it so that you would know that the power resides in God and not in me. I mean, it's true that the voice of God, that Jesus Christ himself is present today speaking to you. Now, you know, this is also an advertisement for the Sunday school class, you know, a commercial break. Go to it. You'll understand more. But Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will come to me. Well, that's interesting. When did you ever hear the voice of Jesus? When did you come? Why did you come? 
He even goes on to say, other sheep I have who are not of this fold, speaking of you, speaking of the Gentiles, far from Jerusalem. And he says, when the word is preached, you heard the very voice of Jesus and you came to me. That I came reaching out to you in the middle of a suburb in nowhere, Southern California, through a man in order that you might become mine. That God's ways, again, are not our own. But every week, Jesus raises his voice in congregations throughout the world, and he calls each one of his children home. And he calls each one of those that he's already called home to faith and repentance until they make it in that weak way all the way to the end of the age. Every week, we meet the Word of God. The John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, when the Word is preached. Every week, we meet the bread that came down from heaven when bread is passed out and consumed by you. And every time there is a baptism, even though every week your baptism is being renewed as the Word is preached, we meet the baptizer in spirit in our baptism with ordinary... We we meet the one who baptizes by the Spirit when we're baptized with ordinary water. You can't go to God. So every week, God comes to you. Every single week, Christ is present with you in word and in sacrament, week in and week out, even to the end of the age. You remember when Christ rose from the dead? He rebuked one of the women that came and said, why is it that you're looking for the living among the dead? And a lot of times in our age, you now he's telling her, don't look at the tomb, don't look at the cross, you're not going to find Jesus there. He would tell us that we're not to look for a vision or a revival or something bigger or something better. We're not supposed to, you know, uh, climb the highest mountain to see if we might find him. But in the mouth of the preacher and the water of baptism and the bread and wine of the table, there Christ is present and can be found. Jesus isn't absent from the earth. He's with us every Lord's day. And while it makes no sense to us, for the weapons we would choose would surely be more impressive, more attention-getting, more radical, more explosive, easier to put on a billboard, His weak ways work. They work because the bottom line is somehow you came to Him and there was nothing in you that wanted Him to begin with. And you came to him because someone came to you with a word one day and told you about Jesus. And through that word, the Spirit worked, and he gave you new life. This plain old stuff, these plain old people, (laughs) that's God's stuff. These are God's people. I mean, whatever may have happened in Asbury, I cannot say. But what I can say is that Jesus comes to church every week. And he's been seen and heard, and he can be tasted every week at his table. And it is exactly what we need. I mean, those of us who are bound and dead and addicted and sinful and wounded and weak, those who are left out or feel like they're leftovers, those who keep trying but don't quite get it, those who don't try that hard but hope that God might inspire them to, People like us, we need a declaration of mercy from heaven. 
We don't need more instruction about how to get it right here on earth. We already have that instruction, and we have yet to do it. It has been heard, and we have failed miserably. And it's why you're not here. Uh, it's why when you come here, you don't need a coach or a mentor or a guru. You need something less impressive. <laughs> you need a preacher who will proclaim to you Jesus. And week in and week out, armed with water and words and wine and bread, one comes in order that Jesus might meet you here and you might be drawn to him again. As one author writes, this much is certain. There is a revival no less real and even more definitive taking place in every church every weekend where God's people gather around his gifts. In those churches, big or small, urban or rural, packed to the gills or with just a few people in the pews, there the fullness of God is found. There the heavens are open and an unseen army of angels is rejoicing. And the maker of the universe is personally bringing people, average and otherwise uninteresting people like me and you, from death to life. He's there in the midst of middle-aged moms and deadbeat dads and cranky infants and rebellious and attitude-ridden teens, hopeless addicts, overly political uncles, and grandmothers living in denial of their own dementia. He is there in the thick of our mundane messiness. He's there in his fullness doing his work. Which is why, people of God, the big new thing is no match for the same old thing. Because the promise of the presence of Christ is bound to that. The hidden God reveals himself here. And again, while it's contrary to why our way of thinking, where we would want something bigger and better and more seemingly powerful, in the weakness of this hour, the very power of God that holds the universe together is present, and it's present to save. And thank God it is as we look to Christ. Let's pray.